Ross. Hello, everyone. It's really nice to be here. I'm reading from uh, John's Gospel, start, uh, chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple um, started the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, although the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I do not know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she had, that he had said these things to her. Do you see her there? Alone? a couple of years. Before she met Jesus, this was her life, to be alone on the ground, weeping. The locals of Magdala had got used to her. They knew to leave her be and send for one of her household. Sometimes visitors to the town would approach out of concern or to see if she was insensible enough for them to be able to pickpocket her purse. And someone would shoo them away before they caused more trouble. They knew that any touch would change her from a whimpering, trembling ball into a screaming, flailing banshee. She would come round in time, her head pounding from dehydration, her nails caked in dirt, exhausted. She'd look up to see one of her maids or workers hovering over her, protecting her. The more experienced with a look of resigned acceptance, the newer ones with fear in their eyes. They knew she was odd. She had never married despite being from a good family with a good reputation. She had no men in her household. 
She took in girls and widows who would otherwise end up on the streets, trained them to sew and embroider, and now had a thriving business. They couldn't work her out. She was a productive and respected member of society, but kept to the margins due to the demons that possessed and dominated her life. She would freeze at the touch from anyone. Sometimes it would be a couple of weeks, maybe even a month, of abundant energy and productivity. Chatter and laughter emanating from her bustling workshop. But inevitably, at some point, the proxisms would come and leave her insensible or catatonic for days. Her parents had done what they could for her. They'd moved to Magdala, away from the place it had happened. They'd taken her to priests and doctors and even the temple, but nothing had changed. So they'd used the compensation to allow her to set up independently, knowing she'd never be a wife or a mother. Thankfully, somebody had heard her screaming, and they were male, so their testimony was valid. She wouldn't have been able to speak in court, even if she'd been able to attend. But at the time, she was bleeding. She bled for weeks, and then she never bled again. The payments may have given her financial freedom, but their act that day had caged her mind, body, and soul. Those men had forced demons upon her. Their domination of her that day continued to dominate her life. She'd stopped seeking healing. They were all men and always wanted to lay hands on her, take her money, and leave her paralyzed with fear and flashbacks. So when Jesus came through town, she didn't seek him out. She knew her neighbors said that there had been healings and miracles, but she was focused on making her life work, demons or no demons. She enjoyed hearing the stories, sitting with her ladies and girls while they were retold, at times in awe, in times of disbelief. He sounded like a nice man, but a man nonetheless. And then one day, he was there in the street right in front of her. Myriad thoughts of hope and fear and doubt and anxiety raced through her head. She was about to turn away when she realized he was looking straight at her. For once, the look from a man didn't make her stomach churn and her heart rates with anxiety. His eyes held only gentle compassion. No lust, no authority, no expectation. As he walked towards her, she froze, expecting his touch and a dramatic and futile public spectacle. But he stopped and asked if she would be able to provide them with dinner. She almost laughed at her change of emotion. Food she could do, even for this ragged band of traveling men following this purported miracle worker. They crowded into the courtyard, her ladies taking delight in serving them the best the house had to offer. Her house had never hosted so many men at once. She couldn't quite understand why she'd agreed. But there was something different about the, the way these men looked and talked to women that was so different. In the busyness of all the conversations, she quietly observed the way her ladies responded. She didn't see a hint of indecorum or flirtation, just an infectious joy that lit their souls, bringing vibrancy to their humanity. She realized that Jesus was also silent, sitting beside her, watching her. She didn't know how he knew. No one knew what had happened all those years ago. But she knew that he knew 
when her eyes met his, she again saw that gentle compassion and tears welling up and spilling down his cheeks. He saw her. He saw her pain, her anxiety, her fears, her brokenness, her anger, her resignation, her hope, her shattered dreams. She knew that she was known completely. He offered her his hands, open and generous, wanting nothing from her. For the first time in decades, she reached out to touch another person and check his hands. He spoke so softly. Beloved daughter, you are clean. You are whole. You are free. She withdrew from him physically and emotionally. She was so angry. How dare he tell her such things? He didn't know. It wasn't up to him. Another man trying to have power over her. She got up and began clearing dishes, avoiding Jesus' tear-stained face, keeping busy to keep from thinking. It wasn't until the house was quiet, until every visitor had been found a patch of floor and a blanket, that she laid awake among the other women on the rooftop, long after they all slept. It wasn't until then that she allowed the first tear to fall, again alone on the ground weeping. When she woke, they were gone. Jesus had told her ladies not to wake her, and he and his followers had been straight off after breakfast. Her steward reassured her that she'd packed them off with provisions, and the lack of farewell from their host hadn't been taken as a snub. She was withdrawn, grateful not to have to see them in her fragile states, but noticed that the normal happy chatter of her women seemed so subdued compared to the liveliness of the previous evening. Over the following days and weeks, she and her household returned to their normal routine, and the visit of the itinerant rabbi dropped from their conversation. She felt disturbed a few months later when she heard that he was back in town, but she was determined to be indifferent. She told herself that it was important to be supervising the market stall herself that day, and it had nothing to do with being able to hear him teaching outside the synagogue. Yet she found herself lingering at the edge of the crowd, sitting when her feet got sore, and soon was utterly engrossed in his words. She wasn't supposed to be here, no woman was, but Jesus didn't send them away. He clearly had women travelling with him now and learning at his feet. The anger that she had held towards him was swept away by his words about the love of God, about forgiveness, about being chosen and belonging, and about the new community of God's kingdom that could bring peace and hope and love to all. She left with a smile on her face and lay awake that night, again alone on the ground, but not weeping. She realized that she hadn't had an episode for the past few weeks, the past months, She'd never gone that long without her nightmares being triggered, her memories overwhelming her. She realized she'd been trading with men in the market without her familiar heart-pounding fear. She'd been choosing to go into town, to be in the crowds, without the nausea and anxiety that had crippled her for years. She realized that she couldn't pinpoint when, but at some point in the last few months, her demons had gone. And then she wept with tears of joy. She might still carry her physical scars, but she was free. The following morning, she ran to the market, not worrying about bumping into people, 
to find Jesus leaving the synagogue. She had to push through the crowds around him. She was never going to get close enough to speak to him. But he looked like he was looking for some, someone, scanning all the faces surrounding him until his gaze met hers. He didn't move, didn't speak, but smiled with the light of perfect understanding sparkling in his eyes and carried on talking to the people closest to him. But she knew that he knew. She wasn't surprised when one of his followers knocked on the door later that day and said they would like to come for dinner. She welcomed them all, sure that there was twice as many as last time, including women, and got her ladies to work feeding them and repairing their worn-out tunics. Jesus again took his place next to her at dinner, and they talked about everything except their last encounter. From then on, she joined his followers every day outside the synagogue. She soon fell into her accustomed role, with the women looking to her for guidance and advice. Within days, she had moved from the margins to the center. And when Jesus talked to Peter about it being time to move on, the clear but unspoken expectation was that she would be joining them. So leaving her workshop under the care of the women she had trained, leaving her demons in the past, she went. We don't know what Mary's demons were or why she had them. We don't know when or how Jesus healed her. We don't know who she was or what she had left behind to follow Jesus. We do know that she wasn't a prostitute. She wasn't the super rich daughter of royalty. There should be some slides, Tim. There we go. She wasn't Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she wasn't the sinful woman who anointed Jesus with perfume. About one in five women at the time was called Mary, so it's no wonder people got confused. She also wasn't Jesus' wife or the mother of his child, and she didn't evangelize France. There's lots of stories told about her. And contrary to medieval and Renaissance paintings, she wasn't blonde or auburn-haired with alabaster skin. And she wasn't really, really hairy. So one of the stories that was told about her is that she went out into the desert after Jesus' resurrection and she lived so long in the desert that all of her clothes fell off and her hair grew to cover her modesty. Some of those, it is her head hair. Some of those, she's just turned into a yeti. It's very bizarre. Alternatively, she's still the unrepentant prostitute and she's always got her boobs out. We had a discussion last week whether it was more appropriate to say boobs, boobs or tits. We decided on boobs. Um, but <laughs> Benita's impressed, thank you. Um, what's really impressive is where she's really hairy and got her boobs out. I don't know how you do that. It takes a lot of skill to grow your hair to cover your modesty still with your boobs out. It's impressive. Poor, poor Mary. She has got such a reputation attached to her. From the 6th to the 20th century, the church called her a reformed prostitute. Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory, has a lot to answer for. She was described as licentious and sexualized, repentant and contrite. It was only 40 years ago that the Catholic Church changed their teaching on Mary Magdalene, and popular culture is only just catching up with the untarnishing of her reputation. I've given her a different story, 
a reason for her demons and healing and response to Jesus, a reason to sit and learn from him and to travel with him, but it's just a story. In my story, Mary has what we'd call now PTSD, and it's not my claim that her demons were a mental health condition or that demons and mental health should or could be conflated. That's a completely different sermon. I'm really happy to talk to you if you would like to discuss those things. Um, The point is, the demons I gave her were a beautiful narrative device for the story I wanted to tell. But it's just a story. The great fantasy author Terry Pratchett said that we are not Homo sapiens, wise man, but are instead Pan-Narans, the storytelling chimpanzee. Our stories define us just as the stories attached to Mary have defined her for hundreds of years. What we do know is that Mary, called Magdalene, was probably named after the town in the Sea of Galilee, where she came from. She's mentioned by name 14 times in the Gospel, which is more than many of the male disciples. Eight times she's mentioned first in a list of women following Jesus, and five times she is alone. She was important. She wasn't identified by who she was the wife of, the daughter of, the mother of. She was independent and able to make her own choices geographically and financially, able to support Jesus and those traveling with him, able to sit at his feet and learn from him, to work with him and be sent out on that work. She was able to be a disciple. And we know nothing else about her until the passion narrative. And there she stands when no one else does. She's there at the cross. She's there when Jesus' body is laid in the tomb. She's there to find the body gone. And she's there when he appears in the garden. She's a radical disciple, but not of the extreme skydiving, moving to Nicaragua, pussy riot kind. A few weeks ago, Reuben was here talking about the calling and the cost of radical discipleship. I want to take a slightly different tack. We've talked many times about radical coming from the term radix, meaning root. In Mary's case, her radicalness was her rootedness. Being steady, just getting on with your job, can be overlooked as a hugely valuable characteristic. Mary was entirely rooted in her discipleship, her loving care for Jesus and his followers. Nothing could uproot her. She was grounded and steadfast. She was always there in the background doing her thing. When others came and went, when others with loud voices about their reliability turned out to be unreliable, when others fled and hid in fear, There she was. She was quietly dependable, radically rooted against the tides of changing circumstance. And as I was thinking about that rootedness, there was just one thing that came to mind. It's identity. What is the story you believe about yourself and your relationship with God? And how is that different from the story that God wants you to believe? 
Only when we develop our self-awareness to the point of really understanding our own identity can we be grounded and dependable disciples despite the circumstances. The truth of your identity is that you are loved, you are wanted, and you are meant to be. You are loved exactly as you are. You are wanted exactly as you are. And you are meant to be exactly as you are. And when you see yourself not as flawed and broken and sinful, but as a reflection of the beautiful image of God, when you see yourself as God sees you, you are free to be the person that God created you to be. Knowing your identity allows you to reject the false identities that the world and your psyche and ego demand you conform to. And you can stand before God in a restored relationship, the truest version of yourself. All other things, our beliefs and ethics and behavior, repentance and thanksgiving and peace and joy and humility are all outworkings of really understanding our identities. They are the visible growth of those roots. What is the story you believe about yourself and your relationship with God? What is the story that God wants you to believe? The truth of your identity is that you are loved, you are wanted, and you are meant to be. You are a reflection of the beautiful image of God. And it's only when that identity is truly rooted in your heart that the rest can flourish. Someone shook her awake in the early hours. It was still dark and the air was chilled. It took her a while to understand what was happening. The last she knew, they'd been sharing the Passover meal together and she was expecting to go to the temple in the morning and then celebrate for the rest of the week. Now she was being told that Jesus had been arrested and had been taken illegally to the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. She dressed hurriedly and arrived to find the entrance of the courtyard blocked by guards. She could see Peter by the fire talking to some of the servants. She waited, anxious and shivering. At dawn, Peter abruptly stood and fled past her without seeing her. A few moments later, Jesus was brought out bloodied and bruised. She couldn't get close to him, but she was sure he knew she was there. She followed them to Pilate's house and again had to wait with agonizing impatience. At last, Pilate appeared with Jesus, ready to release him, but she couldn't understand the crowd shouting for him to be crucified. This man of love and compassion who proclaimed the coming of peace the healer of broken bodies, hearts, and minds was being tortured. Standing with some of the other followers, she could only watch as he was beaten, whipped, and forced through the streets carrying his cross. She could only watch as the nails were driven into his hands and he was raised up. She could only watch as every breath got heavier until he didn't breathe again. She could only watch as they punctured his side. She could only watch as they brought down his body and took him to Joseph's tomb. And then she could act.
she could wash him and wrap him, helping Joseph and Nicodemus to place myrrh and aloes between the cloths. Once again, she could be busy to avoid thinking. But her thoughts carried on even as her hands worked. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Her healer, who had set her free, who had shown her a love that had had allowed her to become the truest version of herself, was now a corpse in her hands. Her teacher had betrayed her trust, her dedication to him. Where was his peace, his coming kingdom, his restored relationship now? In her grief, she was angry at the Sanhedrin, angry at Pilate, and once again angry at Jesus. She finished her task, suppressing her rage as to not impose herself on the subdued anguish of her companions. But unable to contain herself, she left them at the entrance to the garden and walked a different route into the city to be alone for a moment. The following day, the leaders, leaderless followers of Jesus went through their routines of high Sabbath mechanically, together but isolated, mentally absent, numb with shock and confusion. This time she woke of her own accord in the early hours and she rose and walked back to the tomb in the first hints of the new dawn with some of the other women. They were alarmed at the scene that met them. It had only been a few hours before that she had seen the tomb sealed and the guards had shooed her away. Now the guards were gone and the tomb was open and the tomb was empty. They searched frantically in the growing morning but found nothing to explain the absences. So she ran back through the city and she burst in on Simon and John. They couldn't understand her words. They didn't believe her jumbled testimony. So they ran with her to see for themselves. It was incomprehensible. And the men and women left together to find the other disciples to see if anyone knew anything or they could get any answers from any of the authorities. But she stayed and she couldn't hold it in any longer. Even her grieving had been robbed from her. For the first time in years, she was alone on the ground, weeping. The sun was high overhead when she heard the voices. She hadn't heard any footsteps, but they were in the tomb, asking why she was crying. Really? She was at a tomb side. What did they think she was crying about? And then she saw another man, the gardener, who exasperatingly asked her the same question. She asked if they knew where they if he knew where they'd taken the body of her teacher. He spoke so softly. Mary. The surge of recognition engulfed her. It only took a word. Greeting, consolation, an invitation in a word, a name, her name. Once again in that moment she knew that she was seen and known and loved her teacher, her healer, her friend. Here he stood in front of her eyes. Why was she crying? He was risen. She wanted to cling to him to prove that he wasn't her imaginings and to stop him from ever leaving her again. But he gently rebuked her. He really was here, but he wasn't going to be staying for long. And she needed to be the witness to tell the others that he was risen and that his resurrection, he had ensured that they could now all call their God Father. 
Reluctantly, she let go of his hands, utterly uncertain and yet completely sure, and she went. That's where my story of Mary Magdalene ends. But I'd like us to sit for a moment in the quietness, to listen out for the voice of the risen Jesus calling us by name. Listen to him calling you by name. See yourself for a moment through Jesus' eyes. Let him tell you your story and recognize the identity in which you can be radically rooted.